So, good evening. So, um, I always like to congratulate you for surviving the first 24 hours. I know for some of you, it's probably quite delightful and delicious to be here, to be in silence and stillness and meditating and community and nature. And and for others of you, uh, it may not be so glorious or delightful or delicious. It might be quite challenging or difficult or painful or boring. Or you might be feeling quite restless or sleepy or finding it hard to find the breath. What breath? What concentration? What meditation? Was I present today? How many people noticed a lot of thinking today? Put your hands up. Okay, look around. <laughs> yeah, so we're in good company. Anybody sleepy today? Anybody feeling a little agitated, like wanting to run out the meditation hall? <laughs> yeah. So Sharon will talk a little more about working with some of those obstacles and challenges we meet in practice. Today I'm going to give a little more of an overview of um, meta practice and the, how I see and understand mindfulness practice and meta practice really being um, a unified practice how they support each other and interweave and really um, uh, work harmoniously in our practice and not seeing them as so discreet and distinct even though we actually um, do them in some ways as as, as separate practices. So um, just take a little step back. The reason that we're here, the reason that the Buddha began teaching was to explain and help understand and help move us from a place of suffering and discontent and unsatisfactoriness and confusion to one of clarity, to one of peace, to happiness, to well-being. So that our Dharma practice, our meditation practice, is about learning how to transform our states of mind and heart. That's the, the bigger view here. So we're moving, we're transforming what difficulties you may be uh, presented with uh, as, you, as, you, as we move through the retreat, how to work with those, how to transform negative states of mind, difficult states of mind. There's an expression from uh, the Zen tradition um, about Zen, and the, the, the expression is Zen. When somebody asked, what is Zen? And the answer was, it's an appropriate response. An appropriate response. It's a very beautiful, profound way of summarizing the practice. And mindfulness and metta and the unity of the two are appropriate responses to the moment. In fact, there couldn't be a more appropriate response than having those qualities. I'm going to start off reading a story um, so you can settle in. It's a long story. You can get comfortable. About this quality of of, uh, mindful metta how they, how they work together. I used to have to walk through it automatically. You don't bother to look. You certainly don't let much of it in. But it was the children themselves who began to open me up. Once it started, it began to pull me in gradually but steadily. It was very powerful. But you have to take it in at your own pace. Because here in a neonatal intensive care unit, you see incredible beauty and an unbearable pain. And you have to figure out how to be with both. The children are beautiful because you just get to know them. You can't nurse them, 
you can't really nurse them without knowing them, and you can't know them really know them without seeing their beauty. What can be more beautiful than innocence? And that affects all their features, their tininess, their eyes, the fingers, the sound of the heart. Just their breath can move you with its beauty. Part of it seems to come from how fragile they are, how uncertain it is, and how long they'll live to be here. It was the use of machines and extraordinary medical measures that moved, moved several of us to see how much distance we were putting between ourselves and the infants. Even if the machines weren't enough, though, there was that tendency to keep it impersonal, to keep your distance. And you knew that it wasn't any good for the children, for the, for the children least of all. So a group of us began to talk about it, to open up to our feelings, to decide to be here with the children more. And when it got too hard and we'd break down, we'd support each other and talk it over. The more we opened up, it just became natural that we began this new practice of holding infants when the time would come for them to die. It wasn't a decision as much as something we'd become ready to do. So at the end, we'd take them off the monitors and into our arms in a rocker, and we'd sit with them in their final moments. It tears you apart, because holding them, sometimes you can feel them go, and the death itself is different. On the machines, it's monitored as brain death. In your arms, it's the heart and the breath. You feel ten dozen things at once, terrible sadness because you become attached to the child, but glad too because their suffering is about to end. Maybe anger at the world, at God, or whatever for allowing this to happen, and such empathy for the parents, and something like awe and wonder, like there must be some kind of explanation for all of this which you don't yet understand. And patience too, that things become more clear in time. And peace of mind because you're doing the best you can. And humble to be present at such a moment, all of the above often at once. You're sitting with these feelings as well as sitting there with the child, but it's a final act for them as well. You're offering whatever peace you've come to, and it creates such intimacy, impossible to describe. You're so right there with them. So I think that's a beautiful description of the power of presence imbued with the quality of care, with affection, with love, which is really the quality that I'm speaking about tonight. And you can see in reading that that it's, uh, it takes a lot of courage, a lot of strength, a lot of fortitude to be fully present to ourselves, to each other, to the world, uh, when things aren't so easy, when they're not so clear, when they're challenging, when they're uh, confronting in some ways. I'm coming to understand that metta is like a mindfulness of the heart. It's a mindfulness of the climate of the heart. And the metta is within mindfulness, and mindfulness is within metta. There's a lovely saying from the sixth patriarch, one of the great founders, uh, great teachers from the Chan tradition in China, who said that, Do not say that awareness and kindness are separate. One cannot arise without the other. Awareness is the foundation of kindness, and kindness is the expression of awareness. In Buddhist countries where they talk about mind, which is from the Pali word citta, the mind is located in the heart. So heart, this heart and mind are considered the same thing. And so I think in the West we more have a duality between the mind and the heart, between body and mind, and therefore uh, between awareness and the heart. 
metta and mindfulness share many qualities, many of the qualities that you are cultivating today, presence, attention, attentiveness, allowing things to be as they are, not interfering with your experience, qualities of interest, of connection, of uh, um, a sort of intimate uh, knowing of the moment, intimate connection with what's happening and acceptance and openness. These are all qualities that are also present in metta, in love, interest, openness, allowing, acceptance, non-judging. Joanna Macy, Buddhist teacher and activist, puts it this way. The Dharma path strikes me as profoundly erotic, she said in an interview, unusual statement for a Buddhist teacher. Buddhism teaches us to pay attention, and if you mindfully put your attention on anything, you find love arising there for whatever it is, anything. You put your attention on it, and it reveals itself to you. I'm wondering if some of you notice that today, just simply being present, even just for a moment, with something, with your breath, body, some beautiful scene outside, the snow blowing off the, off the rooftops. And there's a, there's, a, there's a wellspring of affection, of tenderness, of care that arises in those moments of presence. Mary Oliver puts it this way, there's nothing in this world, if I can pay attention to long enough, that doesn't, doesn't cease to foster wonder and love. If there is, I haven't found it yet. So both the practices of mindfulness and metta foster a, um, an attitude of receptivity. We're cultivating a quality, particularly in the mindfulness practice of receptivity, of listening, receiving the moment, receiving the breath. But it's the same with metta, learning how to be receptive to the moment, to our hearts, to each other. There's a this is also from uh, another artist from, um, and writer, Henry Miller, who puts it this way. When he first took up painting after many years of writing, I remember well the transformation that took place in me when I first began to view the world with the eyes of a painter. The most familiar things and objects which I had gazed at all my life now became an, an unending source of wonder, and with wonder, of course, affection. A teapot, an old hammer, a chipped cup, Whatever came to hand, I looked upon as I'd never seen it before. To paint is to love again, and to live again, and to see again. And so with mindfulness and with metapractice, we're learning how to see again, how to see ourselves, how to see each other, how to be fresh. And in that story that I read about the, the man in the, in the children's hospital, part of Dharma teachings, as you know, are asking us to look at the truth, to looking at what's true in our experience. And sometimes what's true in our experience or in the world isn't easy, isn't easy to behold. Mindfulness often reveals where we create pain, where we feel pain, where we cause pain, Anybody notice how you create pain today in your, in your life, in your experience? The way you relate to things, the way you talk to yourself, the way we resist, the way we hold on to things that we 
know we're going to go and we're just suffering with attachment. So mindfulness reveals how pain is caused. It also reveals how pain is liberated. Mindfulness is often the bridge. The quality of kindness or care is the bridge that heals some of that pain. It heals the pain in the heart of loneliness, of separation, of division, of hatred, of fear. On a retreat I was teaching recently at Spirit Rock, a meta retreat, there was a woman who had recently lost her son, a grown son, and was in great uh, uh, amount of despair, as you can imagine. And she did meta to herself for most of the retreat as a way of dealing with that pain. And she said towards the end of the retreat that she found a way, uh, a way out. She, she found, uh, she was able to see that life was worth living. Prior to that moment, she hadn't. So it's profoundly healing and nourishing when we learn how to hold ourselves in our difficulty. One of the ways the Buddha talked about awakening um, was the, the, he called it the liberation of the heart, the sure heart's release, which is love. And as the longer I've come to practice, and it's been some years now since I've been on this journey most of my life, in the, for the first good half of, the, of my spiritual life, as it were. Um, I was um, thinking that the goal of practice was to uh, free myself from the pain of the world, which sort of, in parentheses, was get away from the pain of the world, somehow to transcend this messy, complicated, difficult, challenging, earthly plane and somehow find some cosmic transcendent reality that I could just dwell in emptiness until I retired. But it was very cool and a little um, aversive. It was a little distant. It was a little disdaining. And it wasn't freedom at all. It was um, coolness. And it wasn't until some certain events uh, kind of awoke, sort of broke through that um, misperception and really opened my heart that I began to really understand what the path was really about. That our practice and our insight uh, really allows the heart to open to love, to compassion. That that becomes, uh, there's a certain fullness to one's being when the heart opens. And that as that grows, becomes more central is not wanting to escape the world, but really to be in the world and to make a difference in the world, to help relieve not just our own suffering, but the suffering uh, of the world. When the Buddha was asked about friendship from Ananda, who was excited to realize that friendship was half, spiritual friendship was half the Half the spiritual life, the Buddha scolded him and said, no, 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 Ananda, spiritual friendship, which is really metta, 
is not half the spiritual life, it's the whole of the spiritual life. Cultivating this friendliness towards all of life is really central in this practice, just as the Dalai Lama, as you will know, talks about his religion being kindness, much as he's a great scholar and student of emptiness, his, his practice, his living, breathing practice is one of kindness. And he, it's very obvious to see in his being, his radiance. The Sufi poet Hafez put it this way, we are people who need to love because love is the soul's life. Love is simply creation's greatest joy. One of my favorite stories about the Buddha also uh, was um, connected to Ananda, his uh, cousin and attendant for some decades, um, probably knew the Buddha more intimately than anybody else, even though he had some very long-term disciples. Uh, after the Buddha died, uh, Ananda uh, went missing, and people got concerned and, and found him beside himself with this distress and sadness and pain and crying and and the words that he said about the Buddha after knowing him for so long was he who was so kind, he who was so kind. Not he who was so brilliant or he was a world leader of religion or he was a great master of meditation or whatever, which he was many of those things, but he who was so kind. I see that as a great testament to the fruit of this journey that we're all on. So what is this quality of metta? What is this practice that we'll be doing the next days together? The Buddha, uh, in the Metta Sutta, which we'll be uh, chanting some this week, uh, which is the, one of the texts that the Buddha talked a lot about loving-kindness, he talked about cherishing all living beings with a boundless heart. Cherishing all living beings, loving all beings with a boundless heart. That's a very radiant uh, quality of the heart. It's a kind of love that doesn't have any strings attached to it. It's unconditional. Most of the love that we are familiar with in our culture, particularly in the popular culture, in pop songs and Hallmark cards and Valentines and all of that, it's a kind of love that's very um, conditional, that will that gives love based on certain conditions that that the person likes us or loves us back or gives us things or whatever we determine the conditions to be. But this quality of matter is really um, profound in that way, that it really is a, a, a profound generosity of the heart that doesn't need anything back. It's a pure act of giving of the heart. And of course, we have to admit that um, that we're human and that perhaps many of the different ways that we love aren't so uh, unconditional. And that's okay. We start from wherever we are. Um, but good to notice where, where we feel our unconditionality, perhaps more with our children um, or in different places, with our animals perhaps. Certainly our animals seem to be unconditionally loving as long as we feed them.
Sometimes uh, metta is referred to as gentle rain, the rain that that um, it's very soft and it also permeates everything very gently, very subtly. Again, the poet Hafiz. Even after all this time, the sun never says to ne- the sun never says to the earth, "You owe me." Look what happens with a love like that. It lights the whole sky. So that's the the essence of metta in terms of its potential and radiance. But it's also very ordinary and very simple and down homey. It's nothing that you don't know from your own experience. It's nothing that you don't already have. It's nothing that you haven't experienced uh, throughout your life, both from within and being, being the recipient of. It's the heart that simply wishes to all to be well. It's the heart that's benevolent, that's kind, that's warm. It's the heart that cherishes all life. It's the heart that's kind with our humanness. It's accepting and forgiving of our humanness. It's the way that we greet the world with affection, with fondness. It's the look of care in a mother's eye for her child. It's the action that allows you to take care of yourself, to respect yourself, to respect your limits, your boundaries, your sensitivity. So, um, and just as an addendum to that point, uh, we really encourage you as much as we give out instructions here for the sitting and the walking and the practice to really listen to yourself, particularly if you have some physical illness or disability, um, to really be sensitive so your practice is an expression of kindness. So the posture that you take when you meditate is an expression of kindness to your body. Metta is also a quality of connection. It's, it's the way that connects us. It's, it's, the quali- it's, the, it's like the glue that connects us with each other, with life. There's a story from the last retreat of a woman who um, really didn't like bugs and flies. And Actually, it wasn't the last retreat. It must have been in summer because there's a lot of bugs on this retreat. And... Um, she usually, she said she would always, you know, eradicate them in her house. And of course, we're practicing nonviolence here on the retreat. So, and she'd been practicing meta for some days, and she had a big fly land on her hand. And because she'd been practicing meta, she felt such a sweet quality of connection. She was able to tolerate it. Very simple, very ordinary, but also very profound in its in the, in the metaphor of that. And then on the same retreat, there was a woman who um, was very involved with what was happening in Palestine and had become very numb to the war and the violence and the, the political stalemate. Um, and so her heart had really closed off, even though she had uh, friends and relatives living there. And then on the retreat, as she was doing the meta practice, she found that she, beca- she became much more connected and sensitive to that whole situation again, but with a quality that was able to hold the pain rather than feel despair. So tomorrow morning uh, we'll begin the instructions of Metta, so I won't go into the details of that. Um, Safe to say that we'll be using um, 
phrases that express a wish of loving kindness for ourselves, for others. And so the, the practice we use is uh, we use these, these phrases, these intentions, meta intentions of the heart that really uh, speak to our wish for ourselves and for others. And just like with mindfulness practice, often the question will arise, the doubt will arise in the mind, well, what has this got to do with anything? Or this surely can't be doing any good. Me following my breath, catching one breath every 20 minutes doesn't seem to be doing very much. And I'm sure the same mind will create the same doubting thought tomorrow about, while saying these phrases ain't going to do any good anybody. And um, and what happens is, as you'll find, is that the intention is a very powerful force in the mind. We practice, we, we say phrases to ourselves every day anyway. So we may as well say positive ones. We may as well say ones that really express wisdom and kindness rather than, God, you're just not good enough. You're never going to get anywhere in your life. You're such a klutz. No, 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 no. And it's beautiful watch, to watch both in my own practice, but also what, having taught this practice for some years, to see how transformative it can be as a practice. I want to share a poem from um, a student who um, endured an incredibly, one of the most painful lives, I've, younger lives I've ever heard of as a child and um, came to do meta practice and profoundly transformed the pain and the wounding that came from that. And this poem's called Drink Meta. Drink, drink until you are swollen with the nectar of self-nurturing, beauty and love. Fill yourself with amazement and marvel at the wonder of who you are. Drink, drink the juice of meta for you for no one else, for your own beauty and love. Drink until you are so full it spills from you, freely, gracefully. Drink until you are the nectar, the juice, and then you will find that you have become love itself. I love that line about becoming so full that this quality spills from you. It pours forth. It's not an efforting. It's not like, well, I should, you know, give it out, you know. It just spills forth because the cup is full. So, and I'll say a little more about starting the meta practice with ourselves in a minute. But I just want to reiterate this this um, this idea, this notion that meta is really quite ordinary in the sense that it's very accessible. Sometimes we we hear about these qualities and we, the mind elevates them to, to, a, to a state that we think they're inaccessible. And the world itself functions on a lot of kindness, on ordinary acts of kindness every day. If you think about it, as you go through your day, the people let you in traffic or hold the door open or leave you a nice message on your voicemail. Um, these are different ways that we take care of each other. We might call somebody in distress, a friend who's having a hard time. It's a natural instinct to reach out 
This is a story from Alan Wallace, Tibetan teacher. It's like this, he says, imagine walking along a sidewalk with your arms full of groceries and someone roughly bumps into you so that you fall and your groceries are strewn over the ground. As you rise up from the puddle of broken eggs and tomato juice, you are ready to shout, you idiot, what's wrong with you? Are you blind? But just before you can catch your breath to speak, you see that the person who bumped into you actually is blind. He too is sprawled in the spilled groceries and tomato juice and your anger vanishes in an instant to be replaced by sympathetic concern. Are you hurt? Can I help you up? Our situation is like this, when we clearly realize that the source of disharmony and misery in the world is our own blindness and ignorance. We open the door to wisdom and love. So it's like that, isn't it? That we might bump into somebody and there might be an initial reaction, and then we see, oh, there's another human being over there who's suffering and struggling and rushing just like us. For myself, where I contact that sense of naturalness the the most easily is when I'm outdoors. Not necessarily when it's two degrees outdoors. Um, I like to spend a lot of time outdoors and and a lot of my practice is done outdoors. Um, And it's, uh, I think for a lot of us, the easiest way to, to feel that sense of connection or warmth or tenderness. Um, you know, if you're walking in the woods and you see some of the chickadees, you know, just the, the fragility and the, the beauty of life, of nature. You know, when I teach at Spirit Rock, we have a lot of deer that, keep, that walk around the grounds. And uh, this time of year, the fawns uh, are being born and this is little little beings with white spots jumping around and, and you just can't help but you know, feel that sense of um, rooting for life, caring for life. And one of the things I, I like to reflect on about nature um, that really is a support for our meta practice is it teaches us about non-judgment. We rarely feel much judgment for nature, either towards nature or from nature. And so and we, we, when we're in nature, we're we around things that are expressing their natural, innate treeness, shrubness, birdness, beingness. And so we, we learn how to cultivate a quality of acceptance, accepting things with all their idiosyncrasies. We don't judge the oak tree for being stuntier than or less straight than the pine. We don't judge the pine for being too evergreen. You know, it's just, we just accept it for what it is, as it is. And that slowly rubs off on ourselves. I also like to think of metta as an attitude of heart and mind. It's an attitude of how we meet and greet the world, how we meet our experience. So see if you can remember that over the days. Sometimes we we can get static about a quality thinking it has to be a certain way. But if you think about it as an attitude, as the way that you approach yourself, your body, your breath, your mind, your heart, your neighbor, your roommate, your fellow uh, work, meditation, yogi, to see what quality you're bringing to that moment, to that interaction. 
Because really how we, how we, how we show up and how, what quality we bring to an experience is really key. I know, remember during the, uh, when America first went into Iraq and there was a lot of anti-war demonstrations which I went to, um, I, was always, I, I was and am always struck by the attitude or the quality that was being cultivated, which was a lot of anger and hatred and division and separation, um, which didn't feel to me so much like a peace movement. And again, on the, uh, the story... I heard from the last retreat, this partly came up in the context of a question where somebody asked, does the saying of metta, of wishing these phrases for another person, have an effect on them? And um, I don't really have an answer to that. It's a kind of a who knows question. But this one particular woman um, had a very difficult neighbor, was very hostile and created a lot of animosity in in the neighborhood she was living in. Um, and so she decided to uh, work with him as her difficult person on the retreat, so I was sending a lot of loving kindness to him for about a week. And she went home, and as she was going home, she had to walk past his house, and he was in his yard, and um, her heart was much more open and, and uh, spacious. The, the attitude of heart was really present, and he came down the, the pathway, and she was a little concerned that you know she was in this open place and he was going to be hostile and aggressive. Um, and they started talking, and what happened is the man broke down in tears and said, you know, I'm really sorry. I, I know I'm difficult and I'm hostile and it's not my fault and I, this is just how I am, and and just kind of broke down and expressed his, his, his difficulty being who he was and how difficult it makes everybody else's lives. Um, and who knows whether that was the power of her meta practice or the the openness that she met him with in that moment. Um, but safe to say, the attitude in which we bring to an experience is really important. I like to think of it as inclining our mind towards kindness, inclining our mind towards care. And as I said, metta is uh, an innate quality to our hearts, to our being. No matter how much we feel cut, cut off from it, no matter how disconnected, the same is true with mindfulness. We can feel really disconnected from being present, from being mindful, and it can return in a single moment. And it's the same with this quality of kindness, with love. This is from Gary Larson, The Far Side. This is a picture of, um, so we're in hell, and we're at the gates of hell, and the fires are burning, and there's a bunch of new recruits come in, and Satan's shouting, Mom, no, no! And the little caption underneath says, Despite his repeated efforts to explain things to her, Satan could never dissuade his mother from offering cookies and milk to the accursed. (laughs) She's wearing this little apron, little tray of cookies and milk and little tails coming out from the apron. So maybe we're not offering cookies and milk to each other, but that quality is, is unstoppable within us. It's really um, quite, you know, people who've been oppressed in the most appalling of conditions 
still that quality of the heart to connect and to care and to reach out. You know, the stories from the concentration camps were good examples of people who, despite their wretched conditions, still took the human dignity and kindness and love as the primary quality at the risk of everything else. So tomorrow we'll begin with, uh, we, we, we do the, the meta practice uh, in the easiest way possible. So, um, and we'll probably reiterate that, that it's okay to do this practice in the easiest way possible. You know, when a mind hears that, it usually thinks, mm, there's something wrong with that, it must be difficult, we've got to go the hard way. But we're really, we'll really be encouraging you to find whatever supports you to uh, connect with and nurture the intention and the quality of matter. So traditionally, uh, we start with ourselves um, as the place, as the easiest place to wish metta to. Um, but as some of you are more than acutely aware, starting sending love and kindness to ourselves is not necessarily the easiest place to start. We often have very mixed, conflicted relationship with ourselves. Self-judgments, high standards, uh, never feel like we quite meet our goals. And so we are often quite, uh, we often have quite a punishing and hard uh, attitude rather than loving attitude to ourselves. I know when I first started practice um, in the early 80s, I was an angry young punk rocker and um, was, was very uh, hard on myself and was, happened to be taught this practice when I was 19, which I was very fortunate to get this jewel so young. And it, was, it wasn't easy to begin with, and the idea of wishing kindness to myself felt very self-indulgent and pointless, and I didn't see what the value was. And, but my heart was very hard and, and, and cold and shut down. And so it was actually a really healing practice for me to learn how to wish that quality of care and kindness to myself. And over time, the heart softened and I was able to let in that, uh, to be a little more caring towards myself and realize that I was actually fine just the way I was, despite what my mind was telling me. The Buddha says, the whole world we travel with our thoughts, finding nowhere anyone as precious as one's own self. So we start with this idea of no, the no one being as precious to receive our loving kindness as ourselves. Or as Oscar Wilde says, to love oneself is the beginning of a lifelong love affair. To love oneself is the beginning of a lifelong love affair. It's a very reliable love affair. Unless you allow it, the, the lover doesn't leave you. So um, it's really worthwhile investing a lot of time and energy into this relationship. Because <laughs> as you know, some other ones aren't so reliable. Not that I know anything about that. 
And as we begin to nurture that sense of kindness and care towards ourselves, as the the, the poem expressed earlier, we begin to it begins to overflow a little. Begins to we begin to be a natural desire to want to share that. I, I did a retreat some years ago. I took a month to do a meta retreat, and I was very open to what what happened, and it just happened organically. The first two weeks, I could pretty much only send it to myself. I tried sending that to other people, and just just it just nothing. I just it wasn't what was supposed to be happening, so I just did meta for myself for two weeks, and then something happened middle point of retreat where it was I was almost it was like the only thing that could do was express it outwards that the cup was so full inside that the last couple of weeks was just purely radiating that out to everyone everywhere this is from the Sankadata when you know beyond all doubt that the same life flows through all that is and you are that life you will love and you will love all naturally and spontaneously. When you realize the depth and fullness of your love of yourself, you know that every living being and the entire universe are included in your affection. But it begins from this unconditional self-regard, not I'll love myself if I get a better job or I make more money or if I lose 10 pounds or if I get some biceps no, I love myself just as I am. One of the phrases I say to myself, I, may I love and accept myself just as I am. Put away the self-help books, put away the manuals. May I love and accept myself just as I am. One of the things we'll also be talking about during the retreat is uh, the obstacles that come up. Matter is, uh, it's a concentration practice and it's a purification practice. We set the intention to wish loving kindness to ourselves and others, just like we set the intention to be mindful of our breath today. And of course, a whole slew of things arise that interfere with that simple practice. So we'll be talking about all the things, or some of the things, that interfere or obstruct this natural inclination of the heart the ways that our hearts shut down, the ways that we've gotten numb, the ways that we've gotten cold, the ways that we talk to ourselves, our inner critic, our judge, the ways that we push ourselves or punish ourselves, or the ways that we just get lost in thought, we check out, or we fault find. You probably notice as you're sitting in the dining room one, one day and you're just looking around the room, you might notice how many judgments you make about other people. It's hard to look at a room of people without judging them. The mind doesn't have much shame, so if you can, can really thinks it freely has the right to know what somebody should be doing, what they should be wearing, and how they should be walking and eating and drinking, and and these are you know it's good to have a sense of humor about anything in our mind because the mind is a funny thing. If you don't find it funny, it just ain't. Um, it's good to be spacious about the obstacles that come up. The fears, the contractions, the numbness, the checking out, the all the reasons why we're not worthy of 
love or why somebody else isn't worthy of love. And in particular, to pay attention to the critic, the critic can often arise in a time here on retreat. The inner critic, the judge, can pick up... Um, it can be, turn itself into a Buddhist critic very quickly or a metacritic very quickly. Your meta's not up for much. How long have you been here? Three days? How many moments of meta have you had? Pathetic. So just to be watchful of the evaluating mind, the, the critical mind, you know, we just surrender ourselves to the practice. We give ourselves to the forming. These retreats are designed because they work. You know, we've been doing them for decades and these practices have been done for thousands of years by millions of people and they work. That's one of the things I love about this practice is it hasn't been invented in Esalen five years ago. It really has some sustaining uh, history to it. Uh, there's a lot of um, people out there who've really uh, transformed their hearts and minds, liberated themselves through this practice. The bumper sticker says, don't believe everything that you think. So, um, I think that's enough words for this evening. Um, Just to remember that as we undertake the quality of metta, to remember that it's an an, an innate part of your heart, an innate part of your nature, And the good news is it can be cultivated, just like any quality. It can be nurtured. So the metaphrases are like we're we're, we're tending the garden of love. And so the metaphrase is like we're planting seeds of metta, of love, planting seeds in the heart, which will flower the more that we cultivate the garden of our hearts. So let's sit for a moment. And I'll leave you with a poem from Rumi. Every tree, every growing thing as it grows, says this truth. You harvest what you sow. With life as short as a half-taken breath, don't plant anything but love. So thank you for your attention. Uh, We'll now have a period of walking and we'll come back together for some chanting and some sitting at nine o'clock. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.